Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the book of Exodus once again. Exodus chapter 20. Today we're not going to be reading all ten commandments. We are going to read, however, a the commandment, uh, the tenth commandment itself, and then look at somewhat of a, a corresponding and uh, almost a commentary passage in the book of James uh, in uh, chapter one. But let's first look at chapter twenty. Remember that. The context here is one of deliverance, redemption. The people of God had been set free by the power of God and the goodness of God from the tyranny of the slavery they were in in Egypt. God led them out of bondage, put them in a place of freedom. And we've seen that that is a story that's even that's wonderfully fulfilled because it points us to the redemption from the slavery of sin that we have in Jesus Christ. The whole story of the Bible is one of redemption, and this is a part of that story. Then God says here, I have redeemed you. Now here is how you are to live for my glory. We get it backwards so often. We think, oh, I've got to be a good person. I've got to be a good boy, a good girl, and keep all of God's commandments, and then God will be happy with me, and he'll let me into heaven. And that's exactly the opposite of the message of the Bible. The Bible says God enters into our lives and draws us to himself, frees us from the bondage of sin because of what Christ did on the cross and once we have been freed from that, once we are new creations in Christ, then God calls us to keep his commandments. And so let's remember that. We're not looking at these commandments as a way to, to impress God. We are looking at these commandments as a way to show our love for God, our, our gratitude to God for his delivering us from the bondage of our sin through the help of the Holy Spirit, of course. So how do you love God? How do you go about loving God and loving your neighbor? Keep the 10 commandments. All right, so let's look at commandment 10. Verse 17 of chapter 20. You shall not covet your neighbor's house you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Then looking at James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed 
by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This is the word of the Lord. So we have decided, excuse me, I had decided that we would take three different looks at this 10th commandment. A little bit more uh, time involved in doing this than we have done in most of the other commandments. But one reason is because it is the 10th commandment. And in many ways, the 10th commandment summarizes all the previous commandments. And as we saw last week, you can't break the 10th commandment without at the same time breaking some of the other commandments, maybe even all of them at the same time. And last week then we looked at what is coveting? What is coveting? And we talked about that. We'll say a little bit more now. We also today are talking about why do we covet? What is it, what are the dynamics involved in our spiritual lives that lead us to coveting. And then, Lord willing, next week, we'll talk about how we can stop coveting, how we deal with that through the wisdom and the grace of God in Christ. Remember, it is not sinful to desire something as such. There are many healthy desires that we can have But coveting is sinful desire. Coveting is when we desire something that somebody else has that we don't, and we want that. We even would want it at the expense of the other person. So verse 17 of Exodus 20 is comprehensive. You shall not covet anything that is your neighbor's. It gives a number of examples there. Don't covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, and so on, and all the way through. And then it ends by saying, or anything that is your neighbor's. This can even include, by the way, church relationships. You can covet the position of someone that's a leader in the church. And you can say, I'd re- I could do a better job than that guy's doing. I could be a better preacher and I hadn't even been to seminary than this preacher we've got right now. Or you could covet, covet someone's spiritual gifts. I want to be the teacher of this class and not that other person. We can covet one another and one another's situations right here within the church. Have you ever done something or said something and asked yourself, why did I do that? You ever done that? Yeah. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? And you come to realize, well, I just, where did that come from? Well, when you find yourself wanting what another person has, ask yourself that question. Why 
Do I covet that person's situation? Why do I covet that particular thing? Why do I covet my neighbor's house? And on we could go with examples. Well, what I'd like to do, and you see it in your bulletin outline, I'm going to set before you three biblical reasons why we covet. And that's important so we can know how to deal with our coveting, which again, we'll talk about more next week. And remember, we all do covet. And if you don't think you do, uh, you better reevaluate because you're like all the rest of us. We, all of us break these, all 10 commandments in one way or another. So let's look at these. First of all, we covet because we fail to appreciate God's fatherly care over us. Us meaning his redeemed people. God's fatherly care. And we're going to look at a number of passages this morning that I think supplement or help us better understand the whole process of coveting. So if you find yourself, your fingers getting tired from flipping over from one passage to another, I apologize in advance. Or if you prefer, you can just listen without flipping around in your Bible. But it's more helpful when you actually look at the words. You find that to be true? When you actually look at them, they have a tendency to sink in better. So turn over to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to look at this chapter uh, a couple of times, so keep that in mind. Matthew 6 is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the middle chapter of the three chapters that constitute one of the longest single teaching section in the Gospels. Chapter 6, if you'll scan down that chapter, if you've never noticed this before, Jesus refers to our Father, our Heavenly Father, multitude, not multitudes, many times. There's a reason for that. Our relationship to our Father in Heaven is critical when we seek to be more obedient to the commands of God. So in Matthew 6, 26, he talks about an important aspect of dealing with our coveting, even though he doesn't use the word here. Matthew 6, 26, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Your heavenly father takes care of you. Hasn't he done that for you? But don't we at times forget about that? And when we do, we begin to doubt the way he's going to provide for us like he promised. And that can lead us to coveting. God is not providing me with the things that I, quote, want. And we might even be tricking ourselves sometimes into saying things that I need. Those aren't always the same, right? 
And so if God's not going to do it, then I'm just going to go ahead and start setting my heart on this thing that somebody else has that I really want to have. <coughs> but notice what he says about our value. God's going to take care of us because of our value. He says, uh, look at the birds of the air. They don't struggle. They don't worry, if you will, about how they're going to be fed. Your heavenly father feeds them. And then he makes this logical application. At the end of verse 26, are you not of more value than they? Friends, Jesus loves us more than we can imagine. And our heavenly father, who also loves us more than we can imagine, the heavenly father is going to take care of us because we're much more valuable than birds. Everything has value, of course. But Jesus is taking this example of a very lowly animal in the animal kingdom, wonderful as the sparrows are. But in terms of their relative value, we are of much more value. Why? Because we're made in the image of God. We are the crown of God's creation. We are capable of having an actual relationship with the infinite, eternal, glorious God. He is our father. We have been adopted when we become believers in Christ. We are adopted into the heavenly family. And the father is the one who has adopted us. We are his children. Is he not going to take care of us? You know the answer to that. Same answer Jesus is giving here indirectly. He doesn't wait for an answer. He goes right on. Are you not of much more value than they? And then he continues. Now, look down a little farther. Verse 31. And let's read the next couple of verses here. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Or as Paul put it, my God shall supply all of your needs through his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It's our Father's love for us. That will not fail. God doesn't fail in anything he seeks to do. It will not fail. He will not fail to provide for us. So we don't have to covet. There's no need for that. More than likely, if you find yourself coveting, spiritual bells ought to be ringing and red flags ought to be raising to alert you to the fact that you are getting off track in your faith. Worrying can lead to coveting. That's what Jesus is saying. Don't be anxious. Don't worry. You don't need to waste your energy on that. You need to trust me. 
and the promises you have in me. Remember what it means then for God to be our father, but remember that he is our sovereign father. He orders everything according to his plan for us. Something Jesus also said in Matthew, you don't have to turn to it, but in Matthew 10, verses 29 through 31, Matthew 10, 29, are not two sparrows sold for a penny and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. He says some of the same things he said in chapter six. But here he's talking about how God sovereignly watches over us and, and protects us. Not one of those sparrows will fall to the ground apart from your father. God's not so busy taking care of, of uh, the war in Ukraine or uh, the problems we're having in some of our cities. Uh, he's not so busy dealing with that that he, oh, I forgot about that sparrow. And it fell and I missed that. Just the very thought of that's really silly, isn't it? Because he's sovereign. God is sovereign over everything that happens in this world. If he is not sovereign, he's not God. And he not only mentions that, he says, uh, not uh, verse 30, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I don't know about you, but that speaks of sovereignty. <laughs> he knows everything. He knows what you need. He knows your situation. He knows your circumstances. And he's your heavenly father. Now, if you've got a, a good friend that knows you real well, knows your situation, knows your circumstances, listen, that's great. We need that. Not taking away from that. But nobody knows you like the father. Nobody knows your needs like the father. Nobody knows when you're starting to go off track like the father. Nobody knows what's best for you like the father. And nobody can provide exactly what you need when you need it like the father. That's where our faith needs to be directed. Our sovereign father. And we need to remember that, that God is our father and he's our sovereign father. And we need to remember that we often fail to trust our father. There are a number of times in the gospels, especially in the book of Matthew, interestingly enough, where Jesus talks about having little faith. This is where I wanted you to go back to Matthew 6 again at verse 30. Matthew 6, verse 30. He says, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? If God is our Father, our trust needs to be in Him as our Father. If we lived in a pretty good uh, relationship uh, growing up as children with our father, we tended to believe whatever our father said and to trust him. How much more should we do that for our heavenly father? 
Oh, you of little faith. And notice he doesn't rule them out to being cared for just because their faith is little. Their faith was little, but their faith was real. It was genuine. Jesus knows our hearts, but he knows their faith needs to grow. They need to learn to trust God more as we all do. So that should be an encouragement to us. We have little faith. When you boil it down, there's a direct connection between unbelief and coveting or weak faith and coveting. To put it another way, coveting is a failure to love God and a failure to love neighbor. When we don't love God, we're not trusting him like we should. When we don't love our neighbor, we start coveting what they have. Instead of saying, I'm so glad for my neighbor. I'm so happy that they were able to get that job promotion. Wish I could have had it, but that's not what God had in store for me. Great comfort in that. Now, those are some ways of thinking about our, our failures at times to appreciate our, father, our fatherly care, God's fatherly care over us. And we might need to address that to the Lord. Lord, I just haven't really kept in mind that you love me and you're going to care for me because you say so in your word. Now look at the second reason. We covet because we fail to consider how sin develops in us. How sin develops in us. Here's where we go back to the book of James. And that's, uh, actually there's two passages here I want you to see. But the first one is important for us at this point. James 1, 13 through 15 He's talking there about being tempted and not saying it's God that's tempting me. God wouldn't do that. But he does say it's our, our uh, responsibility to deal with that temptation the right way. And so he explains here, he kind of gives us a, a breakdown of how sin develops in us. It's really an amazing thing. He compares it to, to our life cycles. Look at verse 14 especially, uh, 14 and 15. Each person, now notice the emphasis here on individual responsibility. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. That's, that's the word covet. And then he tells us what happens. Then desire when it has conceived, notice the terminology here, conception. When it's conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so you've got these stages here. You've got conception, Birth, growth, death. That's not the direction we want to go, is it? We don't want to go down a path that ends up in death. If you were driving down the road and there was a sign there that said, 
bridge out, would you just keep right on driving? No, you wouldn't because you would not want to go falling into who knows how deep uh, a, a, a chasm that's there where the bridge was would probably mean either severe injury or death. And so he's saying here, look at how sin works in your life. Each one of us, this doesn't just happen to certain Christians, but not to you or me. Each person is lured. There's some kind of attractive thing out there that's got our attention. And we sort of, we sort of get fixated on that. And it's in our minds all the time. And, and uh, it, it's just building and sort of building to a point of some kind of result. And he tells us how that works. Once that desire has conceived. See, it gets to that point where the desire is sin. The, the conception gives birth to sin. In this case, coveting. And sin, when it is fully grown, you know, if it keeps, if you keep doing this, you're going to hit a wall somewhere, either a good way or a bad way. But if it's not dealt with properly, it's going to bring forth death. Now, didn't that happen with Adam and Eve? It did. You go back to Genesis 3, you don't have to turn there, but uh, there's two examples here I wanted to mention to you. The same thing happened with Eve when she was tempted to eat the forbidden fruit. So in, in Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, all right, there's the, the opportunity. There's the situation. It was good for food. It was a delight to the eyes. The tree was to be desired to make one wise. Who came into the picture to get her going in this direction? Of course, it was the serpent, which was the representation of Satan himself. And so she's following that, that logic. Oh, yeah, I'm not supposed to eat of this tree, but because the tree is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if I eat that fruit, I'll know all that I need to know. Not only that, but that sure is a good looking piece of fruit. We had some fresh fruit this week and shared it with some and uh, ate it two or three times. It, you know, it's all these different fruits all cut up and put together and mixed in. And, and I just love that. It's so good. Watermelon and strawberries and apples and just grapes. I mean, could go on and on. Well, here's one particular fruit. You look at that, man, that is good looking fruit. I sure would like to take a big old bite out of that. And so it says, after all of that deliberation, unwise deliberation, she took 
of its fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. They not only knew good, they knew evil. And they fled from God. Death. Death was the result of that. And in the very next chapter, remember the first two, the, the two children that they had at that point, Cain and Abel. And what a terrible situation that was. And we've got this mentioned in chapter four, the first four verses there. But in reading down just a little further of that, from that, the Lord had regard for Abel and his offerings, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, angry and his face fell. Coveting. Cain wanted the, the position, the good position that Abel had with the Lord. He wanted that acceptance and it was his own fault because he had not been faithful to the Lord like his brother had. And so when that unhealthy, sinful desire bore fruit, it resulted in literal death. Spiritual death to a degree. Every time we sin, there's some death involved. Maybe just a little incremental thing, but it's still a negative in terms of the results. Now, I want to give you an example. This may seem a little strange, but coming from me, that shouldn't be a surprise to you. A um, number of years ago, I got a brochure. I think it was in the mail. Why I got it, and you'll understand why in a minute. I have no idea why they sent this to me. It's a brochure by Jaguar Cars. How they got the word that I wanted the Jaguar, I don't know. I never have wanted the Jaguar, but nonetheless, sure, they're fine cars, but this brochure, you, you probably can't read it from here, but this brochure folds on out and the word on the front says lust. And it describes something about the car. Then it folds out to greed, sloth, envy, wrath, gluttony, and pride. Now, you would think that would cause most people to say, yeah, I don't need to even look at that because it's reminding me of all these sins that are in my life that I need to be careful about. No, no. <laughs> Whoever came up with this apparently realized that, you know, this could actually attract people. This could actually be a good way to get people's attention so they can talk about their car. Coveting. Man, what a fine car. I just, I really need one of those. No, you don't really need one of those probably. You want one. That's another story. We covet because we fail to consider how sin develops in us. So we need to catch ourselves when a situation is in front of us that in our mind at least that we're thinking that we want something that's not rightly ours. And we're really complaining to God that God hasn't provided it for us and all of that. And we need to stop right there. Hit 
the brake pedal and realize what is happening and that you are not going to go down that road. So the last thing to note here is that we covet because we pay too much attention to the enticements of the world. I just gave you an example of that. The world of advertising is, is set up to make you want something that you never even realized you needed until you were presented with the opportunity to desire it. Now, at that point, everything's fine. It's what you do from that point that's so important. How we handle that. We assign too much value to what the world can offer us. The world offers us at times in various ways success, better looks, significance, love, the world's view of love, athleticism, cars, houses, boats, and only could go. Those things, for the most part, are not bad in themselves. But the world is saying, this will make you the person that you want to be. This is going to make your life so happy. Leaving God completely out of the picture. First John 2, remember, says, do not love the world or the things of this world. And he talks about the, the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life. These things are not from God. They're from the world, the unbelieving world that wants to solve all our problems apart from God and his goodness to us. In, in Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus makes a very strong statement about how, our, how the riches of this world can be a source of ultimate ruin for us. Let me read that. Luke 12, 15. All right, this is what he says. Take care, or be careful, and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Be careful. Possessions in themselves, okay. God's going to give us possessions if we trust him and we honestly work do the things God tells us to do in his word, but don't let it become an object of coveting where you want this and this and this. So many financial problems are the result of coveting. Financial advisors often will say, look, you can solve your financial problems, get out of debt, uh, have a great plan, budget, and all of that, but they leave God out of it. God is saying, you've got to go deeper to solve your financial situations. You've got to go down to the attitudes of your heart and, and 
be committed to the fact that your heavenly father loves you and is going to provide for you. You do your part, but ultimately it's a matter of God taking care of you. Now, no offense, but Dave Ramsey can't solve those financial problems, and he probably knows that, but so many financial counselors just go by the numbers. Now, Naboth was one who coveted. Naboth was a king. He was married to a rather infamous woman named Jezebel. First Kings 21 tells us a story about how Naboth uh, coveted his neighbor's vineyard. And, excuse me, Ahab was the king. Sorry, temporary brain freeze. Naboth, Naboth was the one who owned the vineyard, and Ahab, his sort of his next door neighbor, was the king. And the king coveted the vineyard that his neighbor Naboth had. And he told his wife about it. He's got such a great vineyard. I sure would like that vineyard. Well, Jezebel, trying to be an accommodating wife, thought, well, I'll take care of that. And so she had false charges trumped up against Naboth, and he was put to death. And lo and behold, the king was able to take the vineyard. It's a great story. You need to read it. We don't have time to read it today, but you, you can read it. And the prophet Elijah said, <clears throat> not only you are going to have your blood licked by the dogs, but so is your wife. And you read on in the next couple of chapters, and lo and behold, that's what happened. Coveting leads to death if we continue on that route. It is said that Alexander the Great wept because he had no more nations to conquer. He wanted this nation, he got it. He wanted this nation, he got it. And there weren't any more. The more we have, the more we want. Watch out for that. And remember what's most valuable. Paul told Timothy, do not put your trust in riches. Jesus, again in Matthew 6, talked about that. 2 Corinthians 8 9 says that uh, we who are believers in Christ, we know the grace of God because though Christ was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. We are rich in the things that matter the most, and we don't need to forget that. So, ending all of this discussion, let me, let me remind you of a, a few words from a, a song that was written back in the 1940s by Jim Reeves, who's a country music hall of famer. He wrote some of the better known songs, but he also wrote one called, uh, that said this. And George Beverly Shea, who sang How Great Thou Art in all the Billy Graham Crusades, he would sing this song many times. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. 
I'd rather be his than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain and be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. I hope you can say amen to that. If you've seen yourself in any or maybe even all of these reasons for coveting, we need to see that coveting is clearly not the way that we need to go. It's dangerous. But if we're going to keep this commandment, we must understand why we covet and how it works. And we've tried to show that some today. Ask yourself, why do I covet? Why did I covet that situation or that person or that thing? To identify the answers is to begin to avoid that sin and to love God and to love your neighbor by keeping this 10th commandment. Good news, though. Christ Jesus died for sinners. Jesus went to the cross to pay the penalty for all of us as we break those 10 commandments. And he will forgive us when we acknowledge the sins of coveting as they come to light in our lives and forgive us and restore us and help us grow in grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the word of God truly is our light, our guide. And we acknowledge to you, Lord, that so often we fail to remember the clear teaching of your word. Lord, uh, forgive us where we have coveted. Help us to spot those occasions when we are tempted to covet something. Or if we find ourselves coveting, to stop and to look to you for help. We praise you that we have a great redeemer in Christ. And oh Lord, how good it is to say, Father, you are our Father in heaven who loves us with an everlasting love. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen.